As our children are making their way to Children's Church, why don't you take your Bibles this morning and open to uh, the book of Mark. Book of Mark, and we're going to skip ahead to chapter 9 this morning, book of Mark chapter 9. So uh, we've been in the season of Epiphany, uh, which is really revealing who Jesus is. We began about six weeks ago uh, looking at the baptism of Jesus and what that reveals about him. And remember that uh, pronouncement from the Father. Uh, we see Jesus in his obedience and the Spirit descending. Uh, and then as we close this morning, this season, we turn to another event in the life and ministry of Jesus that further reveals who he is. Uh, and that event is the transfiguration recorded for us by all three of the synoptic gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's also referenced in the writings of both John and Peter in the New Testament. And so, for those of you who have been here, uh, we've been preaching through uh, kind of the first chapter of Mark. If you're visiting with us, that's kind of where we've been at a, as a church. Uh, and along with these disciples of Jesus, we've been learning about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so this morning, we're going to kind of skip from where we were to chapter 9 to look at this. And so, uh, this morning, we see uh, what these three closest disciples learned from this transfiguration account. Uh, and the way that it teaches us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them to Mark 9, and we'll start at verse 2 uh, and read together through verse 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so that is our scripture this morning, our text this morning, this event that we're looking at. And I believe that the transfiguration in three ways teaches us about Jesus. And so if you're a note taker, the first way that it teaches us is the transfiguration increases our understanding of Jesus. And we're going to leave that up for a minute so that you can get that. The transfiguration increases our understanding of Jesus. Now, as we begin to look at the text, an interesting note that all three of these synoptic gospel writers include is the timing of this event, uh, which is unusual for all three of them. Uh, we've, as we've been studying Mark, we've talked about Mark's favorite word is immediately. Uh, he goes from one event to a next. His, his, his gospel is very action-packed, very concise and compact. And then Matthew, the way that Matthew usually transitions from one story to another is location changes. And so for both of them, it's unusual for them to include a reference to a, a time. And so both of them, though, say uh, after six days. And just as a good student of Scripture, whenever you're reading Scripture and you find this reference, immediately you should ask, what are they referencing this previous event, right? So when we see therefore, we ask, what is it therefore, therefore? When we see now, then, we look back. But this one, and after six days, we have to ask, what is it that happened six days ago? And so as we ask that question, as we begin to scan back up to uh, the text, we find 
Uh, another important event in the life of disciples, as well as their understanding of who Jesus is, in Mark 8, 27, if you'll scan just up in your, your scriptures, you'll find that. Um, Jesus is with his disciples. They're headed to uh, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And he asks them, he says, well, who do people say that I am? And so they answer, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he said this plainly. So that after six days is in reference to this pivotal confession that Peter makes on behalf of the twelve and then the subsequent teaching that Jesus begins in earnest with his disciples. Jesus blesses Peter and praises the Father for revealing this to him. And he says this is the confession that Jesus says he's going to build his church on. In the book of Matthew, the confession includes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I'm convinced that in reading the rest of the gospel accounts, although Peter's confession was theologically accurate, he did not fully understand what it all entailed. He believed that Jesus was the anointed, the Christ and Messiah, and he had some knowledge that Jesus had a special relationship with the Father, but his understanding was far from complete. You're going to see him make mistake after mistake in this understanding, but his confession is theologically correct. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I, I just, in my own mind, I want to note two things. One, that Jesus accepts his confession, as well as says that it is foundational for the church, even though he knows Peter doesn't fully comprehend what it means. He doesn't correct Peter. He doesn't dismiss Peter because he knows that Peter will understand because Jesus is going to show him what it means to be the Son of God and the living Christ. So, all that to say, at least in literary context, the, the transfiguration is tied to this confession of Jesus being the Christ with this inclusion of after six days, which is an important thing to note because the two are related as we're going to see this morning. And then there's the inclusion of after what? After six days. And this could be nothing more than a throwaway line by Matthew and Mark and Luke, as Luke says, eight, counting the two days surrounding those six. But if it was important enough to break from their normal style, and it was important enough to include, then, then, and maybe it had some significance to the first century reader, we have to ask, what could these six days refer to? And as I was studying this, one interesting connection that would have been readily apparent to the original audience is that of Moses' experience on the mountain with God after the Exodus. So Moses brings the people by God's power out of Egypt, and they're traveling through, and they come to the mountain. And the Bible says in Exodus 24 that a cloud covers the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwells on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God brought Moses into the cloud where he was with God for 40 days days and 40 nights, teaching him, giving him the law that he would then pass on to his people. And so there are certainly many similarities between the two, right? They go high up on a mountain. There is a glory cloud that covers it. We talk about the glory of the Lord. And of course, there's instruction 
from Christ as well as they hear from the Father. And so there's certainly a similarity in quality, but I think also in purpose. And so let's look at this first part. They come up to the mountain where they come face to face with the glory of Christ. The text says it this way, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. The word transfigured is translated from the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get, of course, our English word metamorphosis which is often used to think about a a butterfly, right? A a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and comes out a butterfly. It's a complete and radical change of nature. And so all Mark says is that he was transfigured before them and that part of that transformation was that his clothes became intensely white, radiant even beyond what anyone on earth could produce. But Luke, being the the more detail-oriented writer, says it this way. And as he was praying, that is Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So Luke indicates that this transformation was seen not in the sense that his physical form was altered. He still looked like a man. He still looked like Jesus, but rather his face changed. But again, he doesn't say in what way. But if we turn over to Matthew, Matthew says it this way. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Let's put it all together. We see Jesus taking the disciples up on a high mountain where he is praying, and as he is praying, he is changed before their very eyes. His face begins to shine so brightly that it looks like the sun, and his clothes become so radiant that they are shining with a supernatural light. And the Bible says what they were witnessing in that moment was his glory. Luke nine thirty two. they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So in our vernacular today, we might see that they they saw his majesty, right? Like this was King Jesus in all of his glory. They had seen him, listen, in his humanity. They had been following this humble carpenter from Nazareth. They had seen him. But now in this moment, they see the veil pulled back and they see his pre-incarnate majesty as the eternal son of God. The Apostle John, who was on the mountain, would go on to describe it like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, who's also on the mountain, would later describe this event in his second epistle. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain these two great men of faith these two foundational pillars in the church of God both look back at this moment being the first time they really saw the majesty of Jesus This is where they began to understand that this Jesus that they were following was more than a man. He was God incarnate. Because see, Jesus was not just a great man. He was not just a great prophet or a great moral teacher. He was not just a great social activist. Those closest to him testify that he was something more. And that is essential 
to our understanding of what Christianity is and who Christ is. Fundamental to our confessions of who Christ is is that we hold that he was both fully God and fully man. Traditionally, this has been confessed as that we acknowledge in two natures that Christ, those natures are unconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis. Not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the selfsame Son and the only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as from the beginning. This is what the prophets have taught concerning him and as Lord Jesus himself taught us and as a symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. And that's a lot of words, but it's so careful to say he is one, but he has two natures and they are not divided or separable and then neither takes from either. He was both fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully human. And so two joined together. And in this moment, in this transfiguration, we see the, the beauty of that shining through. And this sometimes underemphasized role of the transfiguration is part of what I see in the Gospels as an ever-increasing revelation of who Jesus is. We see it in his baptism where he's pronounced the Son of God. We see it in his transfiguration where we witness his glory. We see it in his resurrection because God did not leave him in the grave. We see it in his ascension as he ascends to the right hand of God and sits down to receive what is rightfully his. As we move through these stories, we begin to get a fuller picture of who Christ is. And it's important to note that with all those who confessed in Orthodox faiths before us, we did not create these doctrines the confession is rooted within the revelation of Scripture, which recorded for us the revelation of who Jesus is as revealed in these events and his own words. So first, the transfiguration of Jesus increases our understanding of who Jesus is. If you really want to know who Jesus is, you can't just look at the compassionate teacher who's expounding Scripture. You can't just look at the man of compassion that is touching uh, and bringing back dead people and giving widows back their sons and healing the blind and the lame. You can't just look at the Jesus who overturns tables in the temple. You have to see the totality of Jesus. And in that is his glory as he stands on the mountain of transfiguration and shines forth both in his face and his clothes. Amen. It increases our understanding of who Jesus is. It also, the second thing it does is it transfiguration instructs our view of suffering. Because listen, as you read the New Testament, if there was one thing that the disciples understood even more than who Jesus was, it was why he came. In their early time of following him, they did not, could not get it. For the disciples, words like Lord, Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, these words, of course, were majestic, but they reflected victory over enemies. They reflected a righteous vindication for the Jewish people from their mistreatment at the hands of the Romans. They pictured an earthly kingdom with Christ at the center, a kingdom in which those who defied Christ would have fire called down on them from heaven to destroy them by the disciples, right? That was the picture of the kingdom they had, right? This was what it meant to call Christ the king. They were expecting this earthly kingdom of victory. And we cannot blame them too much. This, this was the common messianic thoughts about the coming Christ. But how wrong they were. Not only about the nature of the kingdom, but what its establishment would cost. It would not be a bloody battle between Israel and Rome. 
There would be no large uprising where Rome was overthrown. Rather, Jesus says, as their king and their Christ, I'm going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, representing the Judaistic system as a whole. And that their rejection would manifest itself in many sufferings, and ultimately he would be killed. In all three gospel accounts, the order is the same. We have a supernatural confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. We have Christ telling them then not to tell anyone. And immediately he begins teaching them plainly about his coming suffering, rejection, and death at the hands of the Jewish leaders. Now you can imagine their confusion, can't you? Like, whether they've gradually come to realize it or God has supernaturally revealed it, they realize this is his Christ. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, right? And they're excited because this Christ called them to be followers. They're going to be a part of what he is doing. This long-awaited historical event is happening, and then, and the same Jesus begins talking about being rejected, not received by the religious leaders, about suffering and not conquering, about even dying as well as being resurrected, although the Bible says they're not quite sure what to make of that. The reason I bring all that up is because it makes what Peter says next in more context. Because Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die. And this is what Peter says in Mark 8, verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a difference two verses makes, right? Verse 29, you're the Christ. Verse 32, come here and let me set you straight, right? What causes this sudden and titanic shift in Peter? Well, it's not spelled out for us here, but in Matthew we can gain some clarity on what caused it from the substance of his rebuke. Matthew 16, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Essentially, Peter says two expressions in the Greek. They amount to, God be merciful to you, and these things you have said will never happen to you. Pastor Doug O'Donnell, in his preaching the word commentary, says this, offers his paraphrase. Jesus, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which, of course, doesn't include pain and suffering. It's as though Peter says, listen, I know you're a God's chosen one, but you have this plan all wrong. Surely God's plan is to bless you with health and wealth, success and happiness. In today's world, Peter would have been told he just needed more faith and God would bless him abundantly, right? So why the rebuke from Peter? Why did he go from confessing to condemnation of Jesus? The way that I see it in my mind, Peter could not see how glory and suffering could fit together. Right? He couldn't understand how the glory of a Christ, a Messiah, could fit with a rejected suffering servant. He didn't, he couldn't reconcile the two. So in Peter's mind, he could not reconcile that Jesus was both God's chosen one and that he would be largely rejected and greatly suffer and ultimately be put to death. Majesty and suffering did not fit together in Peter's mind. But really, if we're being honest this morning, we have a hard time putting those pieces together in our own minds. seems like they just don't fit. Suffering feels wrong, shameful, something to be avoided. Majesty feels good, elevating, something to be embraced. And I feel many of us like to imagine that if we are following Jesus, then we will avoid suffering. 
Some false teachers even teach as much today. But notice Jesus not only embraces the suffering, but he teaches that it is the way to majesty. Suffering and majesty may be hard for us to reconcile, but they are related in ways that Jesus says are, they go together. This is what he says immediately after this. After he rebukes Peter, he calls the crowd to him and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him. Will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his father with the holy angels? Jesus's ministry is going to take the pattern of cross, then crown. He said, I'm going to be rejected and suffer and then come in glory. I want you to see this in Jesus's ministry and in his mind, the cross is not an obstacle to overcome, but a path to embrace. Jesus says, this is the path. It's going to take me to the cross. And if you want to follow after me, you have to follow in the same way. What Peter saw is wrong. What Peter saw is incompatible with who Jesus was, was the very thing Jesus had come to do. And make no mistake, Christ's glory is just as clearly seen on the cruel Roman cross as it is on the mountain. Here his face shines and it's glorious and it's, it's pretty. There his face is ripped and covered in blood and pouring from the sweat and the, and the tears and the blood. And it is just as glorious. Because in that moment he is embracing the sins of mankind that he may be the propitiation and the payment for it. Willingly bearing our suffering. He is just as glorious on the cross as he is on the mountain. The two go together. Peter is trying to separate them. And this is completely backwards from the world's line of thinking. Isn't it the world's glory comes from giving in to self, to elevating oneself as number one, from dominating others, from being bigger, richer, louder than the other guy. This is what the world celebrates. These are the ones we crown with glory and honor. And yet Christ says, true glory comes from self-denial. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In this loss of life, you will actually save it. In this abandonment of self, you will gain the most precious thing in the world. To embrace Christ, to not only understand, but to celebrate his suffering and dying in the place of sinners will lead us into a place where we will enjoy his glory forever. And Jesus said that to them. But more than that, I believe he then illustrated it for them six days later. They go up to the mountain. And in the transfiguration, they, they witness, and Mark tells us in that moment of his unveiled, unveiled glory, they see two others with him, Moses and Elijah, and they are talking to Jesus. And can I tell you this morning, I have a lot of questions about that whole thing, uh, and I'm sure you do too. But one of the questions that comes to mind quickly is what could they possibly be talking about, right? If you're a curious-minded person, this, this heavenly council, right, where the Messiah is standing with these two great prophets in the glory, what, what possibly could they be talking about? Well, thankfully for us that are curious, Luke tells us what they're talking about, right? As they have this counsel, Luke says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The literal word of departure there is exodus. 
So what exodus? The one he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What is he about to accomplish at Jerusalem? He's going to be crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascend into heaven, having accomplished the freeing of slaves to sin and death, having conquered it, as well as the grave. He's about to lead people out of the slavery into a relationship with the one true God, similar to how Moses led the Israelites out of slavery into a covenant with the holy God on the holy mountain. Isn't it amazing? Like, I want you, I don't miss this, okay? That suffering is centrally located within what is arguably one of the most glorious displays of heavenly majesty in the New Testament. Jesus is unveiled. Moses and Elijah are meeting with him in glory, high on a mountain, and what is right smack in the middle of that council is the cross. Suffering, being put to death by cruel Roman guards. This is what the conversation was about. There is no separation of suffering and glory here. And I think that's the whole point that Jesus is illustrating to these three witnesses, these three disciples. His going to the cross was not something that was beyond his control. He was not at the mercy of the Jewish leaders. It was not something that he simply saw coming as a result of the hatred of the religious leaders. It was part of God's plan. It was part of his glory. It would happen not because men desired for it to happen, but because God had ordained it for happen, to happen. And so in the, Jesus is showing us that suffering and his glory are not separated so that we can learn that the two are not mutually exclusive. And although we know the disciples still don't fully grasp everything yet, this moment surely impacted them and cleared up some of the confusion they had about what Jesus had come to do and how he was going to accomplish it. As we continue to read the New Testament, we will see just how much they would suffer as the gospel advanced. But also, I'll tell you how radically their mindset changed after the resurrection and the ascension, right? Before, Peter could not comprehend how suffering could be a part of God's plan, right? God, God forbid this. May it never happen to you. Listen to what he says about his own suffering in Acts 5. When the Jewish council had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they sent them out. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. What a 180-degree change. They now understand that suffering and glory are not mutually exclusive, that they have suffered for Christ and that, that, that there's glory in that. And for many of us, in my opinion, this is one of the last and most stubborn strongholds in our Christian life. We don't think that following Christ and suffering go together. We don't think that glory and suffering are compatible. And so I just want to say this one thing, and we'll move on. In the transfiguration we see, the glory of Christ is not impacted one bit by his suffering and his rejection. They are not mutually exclusive, and I pray that we can learn that lesson so that when we suffer for the name of Jesus, we can rejoice rather than recoil. And so the transfiguration informs us about suffering. Finally, let us deal with the last teaching of the transfiguration this morning. The transfiguration informs our understanding of God's revelation. Transfiguration informs our understanding of God's revelation. Picture the scene with me from the disciples' point of view this moment. They follow Jesus, their rabbi, uh, and as they watch him pray, he begins to change before them, and then standing there with him is the Moses, 
and the Elijah. I mean, these are heroes of the faith, right? Like, talk about seeing a hero or a spiritual giant. I mean, this is like the lawgiver and the great prophet standing there in front of them with Jesus. What a moment. And so let's look first at Peter's response and then ask what we can learn about Jesus from the appearance of these two specific men. So this happens in verse 5 of uh, chapter 9 says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter says, Rabbi, which means master. That's a good start, right? Master, it's good that we're here. Okay, Peter, it is good that you're here. Let us make three tents. Peter, why didn't you just stop, right? Master, it's so good for us to be here, but he he can't help himself. Peter's really good at saying something when he doesn't know what to say, right? Don't look at your neighbor if they fall in that category, okay? Look straight ahead. Peter is really good at saying something when he doesn't know what to say. Luke says Peter didn't even know what he said. Matthew adds that he he said, Jesus, this is what you will. Like, I'll build these three tabernacles. What a a question. Jesus has already told Peter what his will is. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to go to the cross. And then he sees him in his glory, and he goes, maybe his will is that I build him a tabernacle so that he can stay here on this holy mountain in his glory and avoid the suffering and the condemnation, the rejection that he's talked about. Maybe that's what his will is is all in all Peter doesn't know what to do he's terrified and as he sees Moses and Elijah leaving and Jesus in his glory it seems that he wanted to preserve this moment or at least do something in honor of it Uh, many commentators differ on their opinion of exactly what Peter is saying here did he want to build three tents so that these three might remain set up a base of operation here on the mountain and become the place where people could meet with them did he just want to honor these men by doing something for them we don't, we don't know, and that's okay, because according to Scripture, Peter didn't either, right? He, he said he didn't even know what he was saying. He just blurted it out. But we do know that his statement and his intent are wrong. One, how could three hastily built tabernacles by fishermen ever be good enough to house these glorious individuals? It's a ludicrous thought. Two, he clearly seems to place Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on equal footing, which we also know is wrong. And three, by on these simple, clear reasons, God the Father tells him as much. When we reconcile the three accounts, we find that as Peter is speaking, a cloud overshadows them, and God the Father speaks from heaven, similar to what he did at his baptism, but now the disciples get to hear it. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But unlike the baptism, there's an additional line uttered by God. And interesting enough, it's the only imperative or command in the whole mountaintop experience. God the Father says, listen to him. God interrupts Peter and says, no, this Jesus is the one, the singular, the beloved son that you are to listen to. What are the implications of this command in light of the context? Let's again look at the preceding scene. Moses, the prophet God used to deliver his people, and to bring his law, one who scripture says taught with God face to face, right? Moses would go in and meet with God. And then Elijah, the great prophet of God that called the people back to God, who had his own mountaintop meeting with God. Oftentimes, these figures are used to summarize all of the Hebrew scriptures, or as the New Testament calls it, the law and the prophets. We see in this moment that Jesus stands above them both. 
Indeed, he stands over all the Scripture built as the Word of God and the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. He is the greater prophet, and ultimately all the types and shadows point to him. He is God's final Word. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in the opening of his letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here in this moment, when the disciples look up, they see only Jesus. And suddenly, verse 8, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Here's the implication. Jesus is, the great, is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Listen to him. Jesus is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Listen to him. Peter wanted to include Jesus with what he already knew. Let us build tabernacles that we may marry the Old Testament and the prophets and the the Messiah and put it all together. Jesus, God says, is everything that Peter needs to know. He is the authority over everything. The author and finisher of the faith. Our example, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Beloved. At the end of it all, the transfiguration was God's revelation that Jesus is the one we should listen to. That's what he said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In Jesus, we hear, we learn that God loved mankind by sending his one and only son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Jesus, we learn that God is altogether righteous and just and will not overlook sin. In Jesus, we learn that God is merciful and compassionate, providing salvation to those he calls. In Jesus, we learn that this life is not it, that there's an afterlife, and without Christ, we are doomed to eternal judgment. What more do we need? Nothing. For as the scripture says, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. If we had to summarize what faith in the gospel is, these two words do a pretty good job. Jesus only. Not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus obedience to the law that saves you. It's not Jesus plus religious experience that saves you. It is Jesus only. In his transfiguration, we have before us the perfect, sinless sacrifice for our sins. Fully God and fully man. The glory of God robed in flesh, not only willing to suffer, but embracing it for the joy set before him. This is what the transfiguration teaches us. As we wrap up this morning, I want to note on this day, from their experience seeing Jesus transformed before them, the disciples gained a clear understanding of who he was, of his suffering, and of his authority. And we, some 2,000 years later, as we read their accounts, we are confronted with the same truths. Jesus is not just some historical figure. He is more than a good teacher. He is greater than any that came before him or any born after him. He is absolutely unique, and therefore when he says he is the only way to the Father, we believe him. When the scriptures declare that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, we believe them. Two, Jesus did not just come to show us what the Father was like as the unique and only Son of God. He came to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. He willingly went to the cruel Roman cross to offer his sinless body up so that we, by his own blood, might be secured in redemption and reconciliation as his people. 
In his suffering, he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Three, Jesus is not in addition to the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of them. All of the promises of God find their fulfillment in him. It is not Jesus plus anything else. Rather, the Father testifies that this Jesus is the only begotten, beloved Son of God, and we should listen to him. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He also tells us how to come to him. It's not through obedience to the law. It's not through religious experience or sacraments. It's through repentance and faith. He calls all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, from their trust in themselves, from their trust in systems of religion, and place their hope and trust in himself, to trust him as our Savior and to obey him as our Lord. My prayer for us today as we close is that may we not be a people with an incomplete view of Jesus. But may we see him in his glorious majesty, the only begotten son of God who willingly laid down his life so that men and women would be saved. That is the Jesus that confronts us in our text today, and that is the Jesus who saves. Let's pray this morning.